Lower middle market businesses are a vastly underappreciated and undervalued space with tremendous potential for returns. Unfortunately, finding and acquiring a company can be tiring and filled with inefficiencies, wasted time, and ultimately dead ends. But our sponsor, PrivSource, grew out of the need to navigate through the chaotic waters of the lower middle market and help buyers source high-quality acquisition opportunities. PrivSource provides a fully vetted M&A deal platform with hundreds of live engagements thus far. Unlike other M&A platforms, PrivSource fully vets all members and deals to ensure they meet high-quality standards. They also never charge a referral or success fee on any deal that is sourced through the platform. The platform sources deals from a variety of industries and verticals, with coverage in the U.S. and Canadian markets. Deals range in size from $5 to $15 million in revenue and $1 to $5 million in EBITDA. If you're seeking to acquire and operate a lower middle market business and want to see more deals and pay less fees, check out PrivSource. As a listener of the podcast, you can save 50% off your first month by going to PrivSource.com circle. That's PrivSource.com circle. My guest today is Moses Kagan, founder and CEO of Adaptive Realty, a real estate private equity company with a unique long-term holding strategy focused on the multifamily space in Los Angeles, California. Prior to starting Adaptive, Moses worked for a boutique investment bank in London covering the TMT sector as well as a family-owned real estate development company. I've enjoyed following Moses' Twitter feed for a few months now where he's generously uh, he's shared lots of wisdom about investing in real estate, uh, his investing experiences, operating real estate, and even some life lessons. And so today I'm excited to share my conversation with Moses. Moses, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So just to just to level set, uh, would love to just get you know a little bit more in depth on your background, the career, and kind of how you got to Adaptive Realty today, and then we can go from there. Yeah, sure, and uh, we'll try to try to keep it brief because I know there's a ton of stuff we uh, we want to get to. Real quick background: went to, to boarding school, Princeton, London School of Economics. Thought I was going to be a lawyer. Ended up deciding that banking was maybe like a little bit better of an option for me. A um, couple of years of that, as you said, uh, more or less like uh, uh, forced myself out of the banking business by being overly aggressive in uh, bonus demands, which we can get into if you want. Uh, kind of drifted back to the States. Uh, as you said, I, uh, I was in, in London doing banking and I uh, sort of drifted back to the States, wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. Uh, started a crappy little tech company, uh, bought a apartment building almost sort of by accident with my brother. Um, and then uh, real estate went on sale. This is uh, 2008, nine, and uh, started uh, started seriously buying and, uh, and fixing up apartment buildings thereafter. I listened to a few different interviews just in preparation for our conversation. And if I remember right, you bought uh, that first building right before sort of the downturn. Uh, is that correct? That's right. So could you sort of walk through that first deal and kind of what it was like, you know, holding on to the building during those crazy times? Uh, I was sort of coming of age, like middle of high school, kind of had a light sense of what was going on, but not not sort of in the thick of it. So would be curious to hear what what that was like. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, and uh, I just want to start out by saying that, um, well, a couple of things. One, we were absolutely not like pros. I mean, our, our parents had, had owned a few small apartment buildings, whatever, at that point. So it wasn't like completely alien to us. But um, I, I there, this was not a uh, like a well-considered like real estate, private equity type situation. I mean, this was just like finding a building that was uh, that seemed reasonably cheap relative to the rents or at least compared to everything else that was on the market and like uh, having be extremely being extremely fortunate to have um, actually a great grandfather who had accumulated some capital, which sort of came down through my grandfather to my mom, uh, and then she uh, very kindly kind of capitalized most of that down payment for for my brother and me. Um, so I want to start out by saying like uh, that was it's a lot a lot of a lot of privilege. There. That was not a bootstraps kind of moment. Um, I didn't come back from London with a hell of a lot of savings or anything. And I actually didn't even have credit at the time we bought it. So really uh, our parents helped us. Um, so we bought it, uh, didn't know anything about all really about, about we had to finish some renovations and, and had never, had never done anything. I mean, didn't do, didn't know how to do leasing, didn't know how to do anything. Um, the bank had forced us, the bank that loaned us the money to buy the building forced us to use a management company. And uh, so they sort of did, they started out leasing units and, and kind of running it. We fairly quickly became dissatisfied with the way that they were doing leasing and kind of took that part of it over first. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, it was nuts. Uh, you know, first of all, it was a, it's a, it was kind of a, um, uh, a, a marginal neighborhood. It's got better now. It's actually right around the corner from where I'm sitting now. Uh, marginal neighborhood, um, no parking in those units. So it, it really was not super high end. Um, and we went through some crazy stuff, which uh, I won't bore you with in terms of like just having some tenants who are maybe like uh, not the best tenants that you would want in your building. Took, a, took maybe a year or so to get the building sorted out. And then at the same time, like the economy started falling apart. And so rents that had been, you know, I think we were getting like 1200 bucks for a one bedroom, which was very good for that neighborhood with no parking and everything. Um, went down to, I think we were getting like at the worst of the recession, we were probably getting a thousand for them. And the studios, which we had been getting a thousand for kind of went down into that like 800 range. And uh, it was pretty awful. Like that, that basically nu uh, nuked the cash flow from the building. Like we, we were able to make the mortgage payments. Um, we actually had to, um, there's a central water heater in that building. So like one water heater that heats for, for all uh, 16 units. And it broke probably in like 2010 or something. And we had to go to my dad for a loan for the money to, 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 uh, to fix that water heater. Um, so it was, uh, and that was because there had not been very much in the way of cash flow, And so the, 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 uh, the account was pretty bare at that, at that moment when the emergency hit. Um, uh, but you know, the good news is that we had not levered the building that much. So we were never really in danger of losing it. It got tight, but it was, it wasn't like the end of the world. And, um, and then we just kind of held it and management manage it and rent sort of started to come back. It's actually funny that one of the tenants who we, we gave a break to on the rent down to 800 bucks, this is a rent control building. So like once you lower someone's rent, like, they, they, you know, they're, they're, they're stuck at that new lower level. And this, we finally just had the last tenant uh, from that era move out. 
Uh, and it, I mean, she was fine. She kind of trashed the unit to be honest, but like, it was so nice to, cause she was still paying like, I don't know, like 975 bucks or something. What does rent go for now for that unit? Yeah. Like, so that, that build rents and loss, just to give everyone a sense for what's going on right now, general in Los Angeles, like rents are probably down like 10, 20% uh, due to COVID from last, uh, from this time last year. Um, one, uh, sorry, uh, she was in a studio. So studios in that building market, like today, today, probably like 14, but like, wow. uh, you know, by the, by the spring, it'll be 16 or something again. Yeah. And one, one thing we can sort of get into later that most folks who are not in real estate may not realize, but like a 900 to a 1400 rent bump, like 500 bucks doesn't sound like a lot, but you start sort of scaling it per unit. It's, it's like, you know, just apply a 5% cap rate and it's crazy. It's yeah. insane. Yeah. No, I mean, just to do, you know, walk through the math, I mean, 500 bucks times 12 months is $6,000 in, in rent. And like, I mean, even uh, now, what do you, you're going to pay, buildings are going to be valued at like 15 times the rent. So whatever 15 times 6,000 is, is the, yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a significant uh, uh, change to the building. Right? And that's not per unit. That's an actual incremental difference. So, so it's 120 or 130 or whatever that number is a thousand dollar increase for that one unit. So it's, it's, it's substantial. It's really, it's really, uh, well, it's, so it's, yeah, 16, no, well, it's 6,000 times 15. Is that 90,000? Yeah, I was doing a five, just a five cap would be a 120. Yeah, but yeah, you yeah. Think about it, right. Yeah. No, that's um, the way I'm thinking about it too. But yeah, no, it's, 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 it's enormous uh, amount of value to the building. And like, that's that, that realization right there. Uh, and particularly uh, in the rent control market, like LA, where like, if you set a rent low, the tenant can stay forever with, with wow. city mandated increases. So um, that realization that, that, that the incremental dollar of revenue is um, extraordinarily uh, important to the value of the building was like one of the first things I think that I realized about the Los Angeles real estate market that kind of started to differentiate uh, how we think about owning and managing these things from maybe how other people do. Right, right. I want to get back to the <clears throat> to the management piece, but it seems like it seems like as I understand your playbook, it is to sort of buy a building all cash, to renovate it and to rent it at a higher uh, a higher or market rent for that level of uh, of amenity or sort of finish. Just to sort of level set on what your actual like model is for adaptive, I would love for you to go into the unlevered yield on cost sort of equation. And then we can talk to each one of the levers and maybe how you sort of learned about each one as you were sort of stumbling, I guess, sort of backwards into the, uh, the real estate game. Yeah. I mean, so let's, I guess let's start by explaining what unlevered yield on cost is. And this is um, this very, very simple calculation that I'm about to describe is like absolutely at the heart of what we do. I mean, um, uh, we, we emphasize this number like almost to, uh, to a comical degree around here. Um, and it's a little bit unusual, uh, versus other real estate companies, but I, I think maybe you'll see in a second why. Um, so just to understand what it is, first of all, um, it's just a, it's just a, uh, basically a fraction, a, a division problem. So in the numerator on the top, you've got, uh, your annual rents at, at completion. Like in other words, when you finish the project, um, and you rent the units all up, you take your total annual rent roll that you expect to get. And you subtract uh, 
the annual operating expenses. So when this thing is finished and you know renovated and in good condition and you've rented out all, out all the units, uh, what are your total operating expenses going to be? Your property tax, insurance, property management, repairs and maintenance, cleaning, gardening, pest control, the whole thing. Okay. So uh, that's the that that um, that is in the numerator. In the denominator, um, you basically have the cost, the overall cost of the project. So that's going to be like the cost of acquiring the building, um, the cost of whatever renovations you're going to do, and the cost of uh, holding the building during the renovations. That's something that people often forget. But like for our projects, like we're going to sit there sometimes with a building that's vacant for a year, maybe even a year and a half. Like you're going to pay insurance and security and uh, some utilities because the construction guy is going to plug their stuff in somewhere. So uh, anyway, so so the, again, the uh, the denominator in the in that equation is going to be your, the total cost of the project, and the result uh, when you calculate it out is going to be uh, some percentage, like you know five percent or seven percent or whatever it is, and that is your unlevered yield on cost. Another way to think about it is. If you can magically snap your fingers and invest the amount of money that is in the denominator, uh, what you would be expecting to get back in cash flow, assuming no mortgage, is the number that's in the numerator. Right, right. And I guess you are looking at, you're always running this back of the envelope calculation to get a percentage relative to where interest rates are. That's sort of how you look at going into a property. Yeah. So, I mean, right. So that's the question is like, okay, well, wh what is a good unlevered yield? And uh, one of the mistakes that I've made uh, even until, until actually quite recently is to think about that number in a static way. In other words, like with adaptive realty fund, certainly with fund four, we're on fund six now, but certainly with fund four, and I can't remember possibly on fund five as well we basically expressed our target unlevered yield as a static number. Like we are going to try to exceed, we, we are going to exceed six and a quarter percent unlevered yield on cost or seven or whatever the number was. Okay. The problem with doing that is that the, um, is that interest rates fluctuate. So in a, in a higher interest rate environment, like let's say if we can borrow on a, uh, on a building at 5%, we're going to want, I'll talk about exactly how you think about this, but we're going to want, uh, we're going to want one to target one unlevered yield. If um, we feel confident that we're going to be able to borrow at 3%, we're probably willing to target a lower unlevered yield. So um, it's just like with every other investment. I, I just, I think that this idea that you can value any investment um, without reference to the prevailing interest rate environment is just nonsense. Like th th there is no, there, th there is no way to, to there, there is no intrinsic value that is separate from the interest rate environment. And this is something that like, you know, if you read a lot of Warren Buffett or listen to him and obviously, you know, I encourage everyone to do that. I mean, it's like the best education you get about investing. Um, he talks a lot about intrinsic value and that's kind of something that value investors do too. But if you like start to really think about it, like there's just always an, impl uh, an implied forecast about interest rates that, that, that are in there. And that's just unavoidable. Like you can't, um, there, there is no, investing is about comparing. It's about um, uh, having sca uh, scarce capital that you need to allocate and choosing to which projects or investments you allocate that capital. And it's just, you can't think about that without understanding 
uh, what the interest rate is. So um, in any case, that, sorry for that tangent. So what we're trying to do is uh, to, to get positive leverage. And what that means is we, when we finish a project and it's renovated and operating, we want to go back and we want to borrow against the building in order to take the, the loan proceeds and return them to our capital partners. Right, like we, uh, that's how we return it. We don't sell. So that's how we want to return capital is by refinancing, putting a loan on the building uh, and then taking the money that comes from the bank and handing it back to our, our capital partners. So the, the way to think about that is to say, okay, well, we want to be in a situation where when we, when we take that loan, each dollar we borrow makes the yield on whatever capital remains in the deal better rather than worse. So in the simplest possible terms, like let's assume for a moment that you're going to borrow interest only because it makes the math easier. If you have a six unlevered yield on cost and you're borrowing at seven, every dollar you borrow drives the yield, the, the yield on whatever capital remains in the deal down. If you can borrow at four, every dollar you borrow raises the yield on whatever capital remains in the deal, right? So that's like the simplest way to think about positive yeah. leverage. So- uh, it gets a little bit more complicated because uh, commercial real estate loans are of varying durations. And frequently, although not always, they require you to amortize the loan. In other words, in addition to paying interest every year, you're also paying principal on the loan. And what that means is that you can't just think about it. You can't just compare the unlevered yield, the six that you're getting or whatever, against the interest rate because the amortization kind of screws it up. So like if you, you need to compare it to the total cost of the debt every year, and that includes your amortization. So there, there's a way to calculate that's called a debt constant where you take um, for a given loan of a given duration at a given interest rate, um, you, can you, you can total the annual debt service, like the total cost of 12 months worth of mortgage payments and divide it by the amount you're borrowing and that gives you a debt constant. That, and it's expressed in a percentage in the same way. It's like, but it's going to be higher if it's an amortizing loan. So if you have like a 4% loan, but it amortizes, it's going to really feel like a 5% debt constant or a five and a half or whatever. So what we are looking to do is to put ourselves and our investors in situations where the unlevered yield materially exceeds the debt constant. And the effect of that is that each dollar that we borrow enhances the yield on whatever small amount of capital remains in the deal and makes everything better for all of us. So that's, that's how we're trying to think about the world. So one thing you have to be careful of is these projects take like a year or two and, and interest rates can obviously move. So right now I can borrow at like probably three and a half, somewhere between three and a half and four basically on the building. So, um, we, when we're looking at a new project, we don't just like take that as gospel. We want to say, okay, well, let's assume that interest rates are going to be somewhat higher by the time we finish this project, such that we have a little bit of, uh, of cushion in case things go wrong. Right. <clears throat> so the numerator is more the revenues and the expenses. That's more of the, the management, the operating piece. I do want to return to that in a little bit. Um, but the denominator piece, um, I want to stick with the debt here for a second. So... Well, just to be clear, yeah, uh, just to be clear, the, um, the, when, uh, that unlevered yield on cost calculation that I explained before, um, that obviously, and I'm sure you know this, uh, that, that does not include any debt. True. Yes. It, it's all cash. The purchase price and the construction costs are all cash. 
but when you refi and put the debt on the building, um, I'd just be curious, like, how do you, how do you, what's the process for you specifically um, structuring that debt? How do you think about how much to pull out uh, versus like, do you just target a specific loan to value? Just talk us through how you, how you target like that tar- return of capital. Yeah, yeah. How do you size the loan? Yeah. So there's yeah. two competing incentives here. Like we can talk more about how real estate private equity deals are generally structured and how ours are structured. But um, in general, you as the sponsor are rewarded for returning as much capital as you can to your capital partners as quickly as you can. Like that, obviously that makes sense, right? right? You're an investor, you want your money back. Okay. Um, so one, so there's, so one set of incentives kind of like pushes you to borrow absolutely as much, as, much as, as, you as, possible. as you can. Yeah. Right. Uh, obviously the countervailing piece is you don't want to lose buildings. And right. like in a market like Los Angeles, it's a, you know, it's a spectacular apartment market. It's a great place to own real estate. The one way you can get killed is if you're over levered and you come into something like what happened in March or like we experienced in, um, 2008, nine with our first building, you know, you, you, you lever up with an expectation that rents are, and therefore uh, net operating income is here. And then your rents get killed. And because there's a lot of operating leverage, a 10% decrease in the rents isn't a 10% increase in your net operating income. A 10% decrease in your rents is not a 10% decrease in your net operating income. Yeah. It's like a 20% decrease. Or a yeah. There's a lot of leverage in there. <laughs> exactly. It's the, it's so you're, but it's, it's like, it's the, the impact of operating leverage and then financial leverage. Exactly. So, um, so you want to be really careful when you're sizing the loan to think about what happens in the event that rents do come down by 30%. Um, and so we, uh, we internally have kind of a rule of thumb where we say, okay, we want to be, uh, in terms of sizing the loan, we want to be able to survive rents coming down by 20%, okay, uh, from a cash flow perspective. Um, and then we also want to maintain six months of debt service payments as a reserve. Just in the operating account? Just in the operating account. So yeah. like if we something happens and we literally like have no money coming in, like we can float the right. mortgage for a while. Um, you know, it's expensive because again, it, 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 it cuts against your incentives as the sponsor, like keeping that money sitting in account doing nothing is painful uh, because you'd, you'd be better off from a purely from a sponsor perspective, just distributing that capital to your, to your capital partners. Right. Um, but it's been, but, but this policy has really paid off for us. Like over the last year, rents have come down. Some people aren't paying it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a tough operating environment, but uh, the fact that we've had those uh, reserves has meant that we haven't like had to do capital calls or anything like that. And so uh, I think really validated our, uh, our, our strategy. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of the reasons why I just, I was excited to get you on the podcast because I've just followed you for a while. And I figured that was probably the case that you took the conservative route just based on your model and the long-term hold sort of, uh, and the incentives in place. But that's, I, 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 that's the way I would, I would, um, that, that I would operate it to just, I mean, you can build it to go fast or you can build it to go far. So it sounds like you're, you're trying to do the latter. Yeah. Um, You just, you don't, you just can't take a zero. Yeah. Like, it's okay to not, you know, it's okay if you can't, like, you know, we're going to have a few buildings where we probably won't distribute this year, which is, that really sucks. Like, from yeah. an investor's perspective, like, that's not good, right? And it's really bad for us because it means it sets us back in terms of the day at which we will get into our carry and everything. Right. Um, but 
you know, okay, so it's going to take me another couple of years to get into my carrier or whatever. Like, I don't care about that. I care about not losing buildings. Right. Yeah. No, it's, and, and the truth is, look, uh, if we had to go to investors and be like, listen, we're going to lose this building if we don't do an, ex- an extraordinary capital call, obviously we would do that. Like if it made sense to go to, to go to them and ask for it, we would, I and mean, we're not idiots, but we would regard that as a significant failure of management on our part. Like it, it you don't, you know, we're not going to be, we're not crazy. We'll do it, but it's, it would, it would be very bad for our reputation. Certainly. Uh, so we want to build capital structures that are, that are, that don't put us in that, in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember reading a story once where, uh, it was the story of Sam Zell when he's, I think he sold, um, equity office, like at the height of maybe 2007 or eight. And I think it was the Blackstone and they turned around and sold a bunch off and then sort of rode it through the downturn and then ended up still, uh, deleveraging and, and making a huge profit on it. So just legendary. Kind of, yeah. Great. On Both these guys are operating on a, uh, on yeah. a, a completely different scale than, well, first of all, than me, obviously, but really than anyone else. I mean, they, yeah. they just, they, um, both in terms of the amount of capital that they can swing around and just also in terms of the, the, just the know-how, the capital markets knowledge layered on top of the operating, layered on top of the, the, um, the, the knowledge about individual submarkets and asset classes. I mean, it's just, a, it's, it's awesome. I mean, it's just awesome to read about. I mean, yeah. we're like, we are super experts in one tiny little area and, and probably to be honest, like fairly naive about naive is the wrong word. We're very risk averse in terms of how we capitalize things, you know, intentionally to, to a certain extent. Um, but so, so it, it just, when you, when you, when you read about those guys, it's sort of like a, like a, like an ant looking up at the top of Mount Everest and being yeah. like, <laughs> if you stacked, Everything that I knew across, you know, it's just, it's awesome. It's, it's cool. It is, it is indeed. But just to kind of bring it back to that principle of, of trying to uh, maintain conservative levels of leverage because leverage is the, I mean, in my opinion, I I love real estate. It's, it's, it is leverageable, but it it can get you in trouble fast. So, oh yeah. I mean, Harry um, Macklow who bought a bunch of those buildings from Blackstone in that transaction almost immediately got nuked. I mean, he ended up giving, I don't know if it was all of them back or almost all of them back. And it was like, he was levered, I think like 95% or something like that wow. in those deals. And like, be interesting to know who the lenders were who wanted to loan at 95% to someone who <laughs> yeah. was buying from Blackstone. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like who are not known to like sell things cheaply at like, bot, you know, in, in like right. market downturns, right? Like yeah. these are the, you're buying from a shark and levering up as, as you know, as high as you can go. Like it, it probably is not going to end well. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that piece of the story. Um, so it sounds like somebody was left holding the bag. <laughs> oh, I mean, I think everyone who bought, I don't, maybe not everyone, but almost all of the people who bought those buildings from them at the peak yeah. absolutely got their asses handed to them. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, all right. Well, let's hop to the the numerator, the rent and the expense side. So kind of circling back to the first deal where you sort of find yourself in this operating role now. Uh, why, why? Why wasn't the management company doing well? What did you guys do better? And then kind of how did you morph from that first deal to the second, third, fourth as operators? Yeah. um, So let's see. The first thing that we noticed that they were doing wrong was around the leasing. Um, And and, uh, what I'm going to see now is filtered through like 12 years of doing this on our own. In other words, like, so 
my perception of them at the time was much less nuanced than what I'm about or, and, and sophisticated than what I'm about to say. Uh, at the time, it was just like, these guys don't seem like they're doing a very good job of getting high rents from good tenants quickly, which like, right. everybody actually wants. might be all you need to know. Like, right. <laughs> like, right, like uh, in terms of how you go about doing a better job, uh, the answer is that uh, to market apartments, there's like a chain of things that happens, right? Uh, you you advertise the, the the unit for sale, and you have choices about where you do it. You know, Zillow and Craigslist. Do you put a sign up? Do you not? There's so there's a bunch of choices about marketing. There is uh, who the tenant contacts, right? I, okay, this place looks interesting. It's in my price range. Like I got to reach out to someone and set up a time to see it. There is um, what the unit looks like when they when they um, uh, when they get in there to see it, and then there's the whole process of uh, applying and and signing a lease and moving in. Uh, and so, if you screw up and make bad choices at any point along that, up through the funnel, you are going to, to hurt your chances of securing high rents from good tenants relatively expeditiously. And I mean, what were these, those guys doing wrong? Like everything, <laughs> right? Like from the, like now, I mean, at the time I didn't, you know, I couldn't have probably verbalized it this way, but like the ads were bad. The person who was meeting the tenant, you know, talking to tenants and meeting them for showings was bad. The units themselves didn't look great. And that was partially on us, but partially because they didn't know what they were doing. Right. Uh, the This was sort of like pre-electronic signatures. So the, the um, and also pre-real pre mobile penetration too. So the, the, the process of applying was really clunky and the process of signing the lease was really clunky. So it's just like, all the way through, we were presenting an image of this building as um, generic, subpar, bad service, not technologically forward. Just like, I mean, it's fine. Like you can, we, you can, and we did rent apartments like that. But that is just not how you're going to uh, how you're going to do an excellent job operating. Yeah, no, and and part of the reason why I wanted to ask this, um, you, you may, I think you did see this on Twitter. I'm currently trying to buy a small management company, and so to kind of invert it, uh, if I were to come to you and say, "Hey Moses, uh, you know, I'd like to free up your time and manage your buildings," like what would you want to see out of a good management company? Like, what does a good management company look like? Um, and you you sort of answered it, but anything else to add? That's that that what I just said obviously impacts your leasing. Uh, right. There are there are other things going on too, though. Um, uh, another there's a, there's a another huge element which is the the maintenance. You know, both in terms of like keep both preventative and kind of like normal upkeep. So that by that I mean like janitorial and gardening and um, you know uh, sweeping out the gutters to make sure that you know that you don't have leaks and uh, checking the roof every you know. Um, uh, hydrojetting the, the, the sewer line, that kind of stuff. Okay. There's the preventative stuff. And then there's the like repair piece, like my refrigerator is broken. Can you please come over, have someone come over and fix it. Right. So, uh, and this is an area, uh, frankly, where we, as we have grown, we've, we've grown our management portfolio very, very quickly, uh, at adaptive. And, um, this is the part that's hardest to, right. um, to do well, because, uh, 
I mean, it's, this is a people business. Like it's a certain, you're just in the service business. Like, it, right. it, and it's not as bad as like running a hotel where like you have front guests coming down yelling at the front <laughs> staff, but it might as well be like, it's, you know, and you're sending techs and plumbers and everything into people's apartments and just stuff goes wrong. Like earlier this year, we had a tenant who was like really freaked out about COVID totally understandably someone who was immunocompromised. Okay. And we had had some other, there had been a leak in the apartment. So this, this particular tenant, like it hadn't gone well. And that, that sometimes happens. Like it's just the nature of life that sometimes a unit has two problems. And once you have that second problem, the guy's already primed to be upset. Right. So he comes in, uh, you know, without unannounced to his, he just comes home from work early or whatever. And our two of our maintenance techs are in his apartment fixing whatever the second problem was and their masks are off. Oh boy. Right. And this guy understandably like goes bananas, right? Like he, and he wasn't, and I ended up having to talk to him and I don't spend a lot of time talking to tenants, but this, this case obviously was, it was incredibly bad. And, um, and so, and, and, you know, he calmed down and we didn't actually, I think he's the kind of guy who like when COVID ends, actually we probably end up going and getting a drink together. We have mutual friends. He's like a nice, he's like a, he's a nice, decent, smart, reasonable person who's really scared about dying from COVID and our maintenance techs were in this apartment with no masks on. I mean, it's just yeah. like, and so what you realize and you're like, and so as someone running that business, you're like, well, it should be obvious to our maintenance techs that they wear masks when they're in people's apartments. But it turns out that when you're running a people business like this, just things aren't obvious. Like the, the, the things that would not be obvious to you and me are not obvious to everyone. And you are responsible as the owner of the management company for literally every interaction that happens with your tenants. Right. So you send a plumber over and his boots are dirty and he tracks dirt across someone's carpet. Um, you know, the guy sits down, moves someone's wine bottle and breaks it. Like you name it, that kind of stuff happens. And you do the best you can to standardize procedures and train people and whatever. But like fundamentally, again, it's a people business and people make mistakes. Um, so, uh, so, so that's so like operational excellence on that um, separately from the marketing on that, like repairs and maintenance side is, is it's critical. And, and, and because it's a people business, when you grow quickly, uh, you, you're stressing those people. Like mm. it's just, it's just inevitable. Like you're, you're adding more units to the same people, then you're hiring new people and they're having to start do, doing stuff before they're trained and then they make mistakes and then it, it compounds. It's, it's, it's just a Meanwhile, your systems are breaking because the stuff that worked at hundred units stops working at 300 units and the stuff, that, and then you fix it and it starts breaking at 600 units. Um, so it's, it, you know, in that, that part of it is the, is very much just like a local service business. It's just like running a plumbing company or something. It's just, it's, it's important to do well and it's really hard. Yeah. And um, I would say, okay, so, th so that's, okay. So we talked about marketing we talked about uh, sort of repairs and maintenance. Okay. The final piece of property management that is extraordinarily important is around finance. Um, and that is obviously, uh, taking in the rents, making sure that everyone's paying what they're supposed to pay on time. Um, uh, get it, you know, making all, so it's, that's accounts receivable. The accounts payable is paying all of these people who need to do plumbers and gardeners and roofers and all that stuff. Um, and accounting for all of it, uh, so that the owners can, uh, regularly on time, uh, have access to accurate financial reporting. 
And so when you asked me what those guys, that initial management company, like what they were doing wrong, they were terrible at marketing. The, re the repairs and maintenance piece actually okay, I would say. Terrible at the finance part. Like <clears throat> we would get the financials back and you just like, it was unclear what the hell was going on, both because of how they categorize things and because frequently bills would sit there in their office without getting paid. So you'd have an expense you know, that would occur in January, but it wouldn't get paid until April. And you're oh, trying gosh. to figure out what's going on in Q1, but you can't. So um, where for, for us at Adaptive, I would say we are uh, excellent at the marketing part. We are uh, better now and I still, you know, improving, but certainly not perfect at the operational part, which I think is the hardest part. Certainly, um, yeah. And, and really good at the finance part. And that's, I think, partially driven by the fact that because we um, have so much investor money, like we own $155 million worth of assets uh, with investor capital, okay? You can't fuck around <laughs> yeah. to have other people's money. Like it's one thing to screw around and have bad accounting where it's your money. That's also unadvisable, but like whatever, inadvisable, but whatever. When you have other people's money, I mean, obviously in extremists, you go to jail for that kind of stuff. So, um, and it never, so so we have always had, and partially this is because we have an spectacular um, head of finance who's been with us since the beginning, who's just like sets a culture of like not settling for things that are kind of right or maybe right, like actually like digs in and gets things right. So um, that culture has, has absolutely filtered down to how we handle the accounting for the management business too. Um, and so in my experiences with other property management companies, that is an area where I have been uniformly disappointed with every, I've had occasion to hire three other property, uh, three other property management companies, one, that first deal, and then two other ones at various times in my career. And across the board, the finance, the financial control was really awful. And that's something that we pr uh, pride ourselves on doing well. Yeah. That makes total sense that you started sort of as a finance company, uh, an investment company, so the financial piece would be strong from the beginning. Uh, I, I would definitely agree uh, the operational piece is certainly the messiest, uh, just with people and, and different interactions, and it's hard to sort of standardize every little thing. But I would be curious, what were the main things as you started growing the property management side? Uh, and I want to go back to the, organ the entire organization here in a bit, just what that was like growing it, both the investment and the property management side. But on the operational side, um, you know, talk about some of the things that you had to standardize and what that process has been like as you have grown the third party management side. Oh God, where do you even begin? <laughs> <laughs> well, so let me let me start out by saying that when we were first growing the property, we, we literally, um, when we started Adaptive, so this was in um, 2012, we had approximately 40 units under management, uh, 16 units in that first building that my family owns, uh, 16 units in a building that we had sold someone. We had renovated it through a prior entity and we sold it. And, and this guy who's a, a dear friend and a, a, an investor of ours to this day, um, uh, he bought that building from us. That's how we got to know him. But he, and he hired us to continue managing it. And another... Um, and a similar thing happened with, I think, an eight-unit building. So that's really, it was the two 16-unit buildings, and I think an eight-unit building was, that was it when we first started. Um, we are now at 700-something uh, units. So it's like, and, and that's in the course of whatever it is, eight 
years. I mean, I think that's it, like we doubled more than four times in that. It, it, the growth is insane. When we started, um, the management was like, I had an assistant and she was doing like everything for me, uh, helping me with deals and setting meetings and, and also doing the property management. Okay. And um, we were not giving very good service. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't very many units, but the service wasn't great. I mean, she was doing a million other things and we kept it like that as we kept adding more units and then, you know, the tenants would squeal and eventually we hired someone and it, the, the hardest thing to get right on the management side is the people themselves. Like if you, it's, it's a, it is a thankless job. No one gets up in the morning and they're like, you know what? Everything in my apartment is functioning, is functioning great. Like my toilet works, my refrigerator works, like my air conditioning and heat. Works. Like, thank you, property manager, for making me have another nice, like, no. It's like, you mother effer, my blah, blah, blah is broken. Get down here immediately. And you understand, like, it's their house. They, they're not, I mean, they, I would prefer that they were more polite to our staff, but like fundamentally people have an expectation that their apartment is going to work since they're right. paying rent for it. And it's your fault if it doesn't. Um, and so that is not a, uh, an easy job emotionally. Um, there are people, thank God for them, because I'm not one of them, who do a very good job of taking that interaction in not taking it personally, or like, or at least not taking it so personally that they get angry and sad and burn out, but taking it sufficiently personally that they actually go and solve what can be fairly complicated problems. Right. Right. So it's a very peculiar kind of person that you need to be good in that role. And it's not always obvious when you're interviewing people, whether they're going to be good or not. It turns out that um, a very good source of those people uh, are from the uh, the restaurant bar business, weirdly. Hmm. Why is that? Because, yeah, why is that the case? Because they're, I don't know, I actually don't know anyone like this, but apparently they exist. Like there are people who really savagely mistreat waiters. Like they're just horrible to them. And the waiters, like it's their job to be like, smile and like, you know. Say my pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. Like, hope you come back. And meanwhile, inside, they want to murder the person, but they can't right. show it. They can't spit in their food or, you know, like, so So, uh, for people who come out of an environment like that, property management actually feels fine. Like, it's like you know what I mean? Like, at least the people aren't drunk most of the time. Right. Um, so, uh, so, that was a, in the beginning, um, as we were looking to hire people and, 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 and particularly like we, we couldn't afford to pay like really excellent salaries in the beginning either. So we were reliant on bringing in people who, for whom often this was like their first professional job. Like they had, they had worked in a restaurant or whatever, and they were in their twenties and then they decided they need to get serious and a real job. And this was often like their first professional job. And they didn't, so they didn't come in with any training and we trained them, you know, such as it was. It wasn't like a great, like structured, well thought out training program at the time. It was kind of half-assed and like, this is how we do things. And like, oh, you screwed that up. Here's what you could have done different. Um, and again, I can't claim, like I'm not a particularly good manager of people. Right? And, and my partner is maybe somewhat better, but we're not like, that's not our strong suit, I would say. So it took a while 
of bringing people in, firing them, bringing other people in, keep, you know, finding a gem, keeping that person, bringing someone else in, firing. And meanwhile, you're growing. And every time you have to bring someone in, you train them. And then half the time you have to fire them. It, I mean, it's a disaster. It was so hard. We now have the woman who runs property management for us has been with us for, I think, five plus years. She, she started out just like being one of those, I think, two people at the time that she was hired. She's good. We sent her to school to learn, to act like learn, actually learn what the hell she was doing. Um, and then she has slowly, with our help, kind of hired other people, uh, including increasingly people who are coming with experience from other places. And that uh, and then she has also done a, a much better job than we were doing previously of systematizing everything, procedures, manuals, training programs, um, dividing the portfolio in rational ways so that the responsibilities are sort of like divided uh, in, a, in a smart way among the different staff members. Um, and so as we have scaled and we've, we've professionalized, I would say things have gotten much better. Yeah, that makes total sense. I want to I want to ask a couple a couple different questions. The first one being, can you sort of detail at a high level like, you know, you said that the business sort of d d doubled multiple times over the last call it 8 years, uh both internal uh, like managing your internal units but also a third party. Can you sort of detail from like a number of employees standpoint uh, sort of maybe new standard operating procedures like what each of those stages was was like? <laughs> Uh, just at a high level, just curious. Yeah, um, I'm gonna struggle to to like give you really good checkpoints. Um, currently, we're at like um, it's my partner and me, and I think we're at 13 or 14 full time employees. Um, to this day, we're not good at hiring. Like we just hired some finance people, not in the property management piece, but in the just in like just in the general finance office. Who like that we had to let go. Like it, it's just it's we're still not we're getting better, but we're still not good. Yeah, uh, it's uh, hard. It's just, yeah, it really, and, and in part because um, we have, we just have different expectations. Like these people we hired came from other property management companies. Uh, uh, and so when you see the quality of work that they were accustomed to doing on behalf of these other property management companies, you're like, what the hell's going on in those other property management companies? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, like, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, I, I, but it's not good. So, yeah. um, so, so we, it's, it's really hard, I think, to find great people. Anyway, that was a tangent. So we're at, you know, we're at whatever it is with my partner and me, I think it's 15 full-time people. There are uh, five people in the, in property management and then a whole bunch of leasing agents who handle the leasing. Um, who are effectively like independent contractors. And then um, the finance department, I would say like one and a half people in the finance department, sometimes two, sometimes one, depending on where we are in the monthly billing cycle and everything, um, take care of just the property management. The rest of the people are uh, are engaged in, in the development business in some capacity or another. Okay, as in like the, the construction management piece. Yeah. So I have, so I do, I raise all uh, for our, the deals that we do with investors. Um, I raise the capital and then I have a guy who, who's been with us. He's, he started as an intern and has been with us, I think for like five or six years, uh, who is effectively like my alter ego when it comes to doing acquisitions. 
Um, then my partner, John, has, who oversees the design and construction management, has two guys who work for him um, buying materials and keeping track of contractors and you know that kind of stuff, it's, which is incredibly painful uh, work. I couldn't do it. God bless all of them. Um, and then we have an operations person who kind of, there's just like a random oper- insurance and it's sort of like a hybrid um, internal operations role, but also like some asset management. So around insurance and, and, uh, and things like that. Um, who, am I, who am I leaving out? Then there's so a couple of uh, one and a half finance people who are just more on the investment side. Uh, I think I got everyone. Um, anyway, so that's, that's, that's the breakdown. Yeah. So between between when you started that th- sort of the, the outside management piece um, and 13 employees, uh, obviously you talked about how hard hiring was. We've talked about some just setting up operating procedures for marketing, for uh, for the maintenance side. Um, what was the third piece? Uh, finance. And finance, yes. Uh, any other lessons as you were scaling, you know, both the investment and the management piece? I mean, I got a million. <laughs> the most, maybe the top two that, that sort of really stick out. On the finance side, or excuse me, on the um, management side, and this is like, for people who are actually good business people, they're going to be like shaking their heads like, you idiot. Um, the, writing stuff down, like having repeatable procedures that are like written somewhere so someone can read them and follow them. Uh, it, it, it sounds so simple. And uh, it, it should be, it's like, like rule one of business. And we were pretty late to that. Um, and in fact, the whole business is not documented. The management team does an exceptionally good job of documenting their processes. The acquisition side, like David and I, like it's all like, it's, I mean, we might as well be like, I don't know, making like custom suits or something over here. It's like, it's, it's not documented at all. And that's, partially laziness and, and, and partially just because we don't have to train anyone else because David and I have been doing it together for so long that we kind of right. know what we're looking for. But yeah, I, the number one thing to do is just document like crazy. Like even when it, even when it's painful and you have to kind of change it a lot or whatever, it's just like, because as you grow, it's just, it's so much better to be able to bring in a new person and be like, look, read this, like, this is your job. Right. And then start answering questions. If you have to train them from nothing every time, I mean, it's, it's a disaster. It's really, really hard. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, makes a ton of sense. Uh, just a couple questions more on the, like the operation side that we can get back to the, get back to some real estate and then we can, um, we can, we can wrap up, but you mentioned something, one topic that I wanted to just ask you about, which is incentives. Um, so you mentioned that the leasing assistants were like 1099 contractors. Are they, are they licensed brokers or how, how is that set up? And how did you sort of arrive at, at that incentive structure? And then what are the other incentive structures that you have in place for the rest of the team? Just kind of at a high level. Yeah. I mean, well, going the rest of the team, people are pretty much on salary. Um, yeah. okay. you know, uh, long-term employees get some carry. Uh, in the in the um, uh, investment management business, in the development business, um, and we do bonuses and stuff. I don't think we're. I don't. I wouldn't say that we're um, like cutting edge in that department. I think, and I'll talk about the leasing agents in a second. But I I, I think an underacknowledged truth of uh, business in general is that if you want good people, yes, pay matters, like no question, but. Um, what matters more, or at least as much, let's say, 
is the environment in which they're working. And I don't mean, I mean, look, it's nice to have a nice office. We, we do have actually a reasonably nice office now, although we didn't used to. Um, what I mean by environment is like, is there, like, is it clear what their job is? Uh, is it clear what the expectations are? Do they have a manager who gives them what they need to fulfill the job to which they've been assigned, but does not like micromanage them and make their lives miserable? Right. Do people, are people yelling in the office? Like, just like, it sounds like obvious, but in so many particularly small companies, that kind of shit is going on. Like, there's yeah. just, it's just terrible. You know, is, are people being sexually harassed? Right. Like, just like the stuff that to me is like so obvious, you know, it's like, yeah, do not have a company where people are being sexually harassed because you will not be able to keep and attract good talent, right? Like, but so many businesses fall down on those very, very simple things that if you just pay attention to making sure that your workplace does not include all of those bad things that I just mentioned, that matters probably as much as what you're paying people. Yeah, yeah, that's... um. That's a that's a great piece of advice. I'll I'll just kind of say anecdotally, the the development place, uh, the shop that I worked and uh, no longer work there now, but is they, their culture is phenomenal. They all the people really they'll come up and speak to you and they smile and there's no yelling, there's no cutthroatness to it, um, and it's something uh, I experienced maybe a little bit more of it in uh, in sort of the sports industry, but uh, but I was grateful that the culture that the place that I worked at was was exactly like that. It didn't have any of that, so I can totally agree with that. People like look, I say this all the time. It's like we're not curing cancer here, okay? Like we make rich people richer. Like we're not curing cancer, okay? And we're also not paying Google salaries, right? Like you know, like people do okay here, and particularly when they've been here for a while, it starts to be pretty good. But like. No, I mean, no one's going to get super rich working at Adaptive Realty. Okay. So like, why would a, why would like a high quality human being choose to spend the best hours of his or her life sitting in this particular office as opposed to some other ones? And yeah, that's like, a, you have to ask yourself, you have to ask yourself that. And to me, like the answer is, well, start, you know, the bot, like the minimum is it's got to be like a reasonable place to work and they have to feel like appreciated and, and not micromanage or screamed at or anything like that. Totally. Totally. Well, I want to switch gears just a little bit to uh, kind of back to the the real estate investment piece. So you buy your first deal, you sort of stumble into this model of uh, long-term hold. Uh, you're starting to grow the management business. You're buying more of these, um, you know, niche apartment buildings, upgrading them, you know, having a long-term uh, type of hold model there. Talk about how the deals are structured on like the carry side with the equity partners. And then I want to ask you a few questions about just sort of different sub-asset classes in general. I'm going to, I'll answer this first, but if you start asking me, like, I'm not like, let me just be very clear. Like uh, uh, my, my, uh, my expertise is like very, very deep and not that wide. I mean, I read stuff, but like if you, you know, I, I don't, I'm just, I don't, I, I'm not an expert in like hotels or whatever. Like, right. I, I don't even know what to do. People are like, well, what do you think of Austin? I'm like, they have good. Don't know. Like, I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> like um, which is maybe a failure, failing on my part, but like I, we perform well to a large extent because there are informational advantages everywhere I turn. Like, uh, from knowing what, just going back to the unlevered yield calculation we talked about before, it's like, we know what the rents are because we have 700 apartments that we're constantly leasing. And I set all the rents for them. <laughs> so like, like 
I'm, I literally review every single financial report before it goes out to the uh, management clients or investors every single month. So like I spot trends and operating expenses. Like it, it's, we, I have, we, I think we have 10 bills. I was looking over at our board over there. Uh, I think we have like 10 or 12 projects under construction right now. So like when we're underwriting a deal, when we're estimating construction, it's like, we know what we're paying for construction. So those are all informational advantages that sort of like coalesce to allow us to do what we do. And I do not have them in other markets. Someday I hope maybe I will, and maybe it'll be multifamily in Austin or who knows where else or whatever, but I do not have them now. So yeah. happy to answer as many questions as you want about what we do, but just be clear if you ask me about something else, I don't know, I'm like a layman in anywhere, anywhere else. Yeah, it makes, makes total sense. Um, well, then getting back to the equity, how, how you structure sort of the equity payouts. I'm curious, you know, what was that second, third, fourth deal like? Was it the same as the deals that you do now? Or how did that sort of morph over time? Um, let me talk about, it took us a while to get where we are through various different things. And I don't, I, I want to kind of focus on what we do now because I think it's like yeah. the end result of a revolution. Um, so, the a couple of things to say. First of all, where does our capital come from? Uh, it's all uh, high net worth individuals and family offices. So what we are not, and this is very crucial, is we are not institutional. And what I mean by institutional, of course, is like pension funds and endowments. Why are we not institutional? Well, there's a whole bunch of reasons, but like I would say that philosophically, or maybe like from a or in terms of taxing, like at a high level. Uh, Institution, uh, pension funds and endowments don't pay taxes. They don't pay capital gains tax. So uh, for them, the standard real estate private equity model of like buying a building, fixing it up and flipping it makes sense. Like they're IRR driven because pre-tax returns and post-tax returns are the same thing for them. Right. Okay. That model is not, it's not, that does not work for, for tax paying investors and family offices. They who pay tax. Like, so great. Someone's like, oh, we got a 16 IRR or whatever. Like you are going to pay a meaningful portion of your uh, profits in, in a deal like that to the IRS. And so um, so our model is, one of the things that our, our model seeks to do is to think about, is to sort of focus on post-tax returns um, rather than pre-tax. Uh, so, so, so we have a bunch of family offices and high net worths. Um, the deals are structured in two ways. So we raise discretionary funds where people will write checks between like six figures and like low seven figures. And we pool that money together and buy and renovate a pool of properties. Um, so that's, I think we just closed on the sixth one of those that we're, uh, we're, we're doing. I can't find anything to buy. Anyone who knows it, anyone finds a really cheap apartment deal, like please find me on Twitter and let me know. Cause I, um, uh, and then either when we don't have a fund, like for a while we had fully committed fund five to deals and we had not yet raised fund six. Uh, so that we, there sometimes will be like an interregnum between funds. And then also there are times when I find deals that are good, but for various reasons, do not meet the return thresholds that are, uh, that, that we promise in the funds. So in both of those instances, we will partner with, um, uh, family offices, basically very, very, very wealthy families. Uh, and they will write checks for an entire deal. So we have like five or six families who will like write a $5 million check for one deal. And it's just a partnership between us and them. Okay. The structure 
the, the economic structure of the funds and those joint ventures is very similar. So I'll explain it now, but like there, there, definitely are, it's the dynamics are a little bit different when it's a bunch of investors, they don't have very much control because any individual one is only, you know, 3% or whatever. When it's a family that writes a check for a whole deal with us, of course, they understandably are going to want some additional controls. Like they want to be able to fire us and to approve loans and all that stuff. And fundamentally that's like completely understandable. If you're, if you're, you know, the one who's paying for everything, like you're going to get more control. It's like a a very reasonable thing. Um, The economic structure. So we use a very plain vanilla structure, relatively speaking. So um, we offer typically a preferred return uh, depending on the deal, it'll be between five and 8% per year, uh, simple interest. So not compounding. Um, we, it's, it's always accruing in the beginning. Cause there's no, when we buy a building, we're going to rip the building to shreds. There's no, we don't have any cash flow. We can't pay it. So, so it accrues, it rolls up. Right. Uh, um, we, for, for us to, we don't, we do not participate in the cash flow or any other, in any money from the deal besides fees, which I'll talk about in a second, um, until the investors have received back all of that accrued preferred return that we didn't pay and all of their capital. After that, then typically we'll do a split where it's like 70% to the investors and 30% to us. And so one way to think about our business, or actually the, the way I think about our business is we get paid fees to do the actual work but the part where we get rich is we are stacking those 30% interests in deal after deal after deal after deal. Right. Now, and those, because we don't sell, those interests do not get monetized. So like we might take, we might do a deal where we put in 3 million and the deal's worth, you know, 4 million and we could sell it and get the 4 million and we would get our 30% of the 1 million different, right? Okay. But we don't do that because we're, we're like philosophically, we want to hold permanently. So the result is that instead of selling, we'll refinance and try to return as much of the money to the investors as we can. And then there'll be cash. It often takes us five, six, seven years to get into the, into the carry, to get to the point where we have returned all of the investors capital and the preferred return that we owed them for the time during which we had. it. Okay. So, uh, so we're basically in the business of being patient, sitting around and waiting for compounding. But the upside of it is that it be, in stacking these 30% interests in building after building after building, what we're doing is uh, extraordinarily tax efficiently building what we hope will be a passive income monster 10, 20, 30 years from now. And how big of a monster it is and how quickly that happens and all that stuff is sort of like fundamentally unknowable. It's like, how quickly are rents going to grow? Like where are interest rates going to go? Like I, I'm basically betting my career that interest rates will stay somewhat reasonable and that rents will grow. People will still want to live in Los Angeles. And over time, those as as the buildings sort of pay out and we get into start, you know get into our carries on deal after deal after deal, that that will have turned out to be a good uh, a good trade. Certainly. So, I, well, I, I I think long term, you know, provided you know you're not over levered, I think you're you're going to hit a home run, no doubt. And why would you want to sell, you know? People say that, but well, I'll tell you why people want to sell. Like we have always been pretty cash poor. Like because we don't sell, right? we just don't monetize our promotes. So one of the key insights to growing this business very early on, and this is going to sound, um, 
this is going to sound crazy to people who are used to the kind of like uh, skin in the game argument is that if you want to build a permanent hold real estate, private equity company, the following has to be true. You need to generate more in fees on each deal than you put in and co-invest. And that is that flies in the face of like a lot of conventional wisdom about how deals ought to be structured. Usually people are like, like, what do you mean you're only putting in a hundred grand and you're getting 300 grand? Like, well, you know, you don't have any skin in the game, right? And the response is, and that, by the way, our investors used to say that kind of stuff to us early on before we had like a track record of performing. But the, fundamentally what happened was we did a couple of deals like that. And then we kept, we went back to our investors and we're like, look, we want to do another deal. But if you make us like, we don't have, we don't have unlimited cash. Like we have, we have, we already invested our cash yeah, in the first yeah. two deals. Like, yeah. you know, we, uh, so if, if you like what we're doing, then you need to get over the fact that our fees are higher than our, than our co-invest. And uh, fortunately, the performance of the deals kind of like made it so that it was obvious to them that they should do that. And that's um, the situation that we find ourselves in now with respect to our capital partners is in general, we, we can put up more capital if we want, but typically we put in like a nominal amount. Uh, and and our fees materially exceed what we what we get paid out, and that's that's what John and I live on. Like the the the, the property management fees kind of pay for most of the salaries for the organization. John and I live on um, uh, the deal fees that we're taking, and then the way that hopefully we are building our net worth, or the way that we are building our net worth, is by as I said, stacking these promotes and basically waiting for them to to get into the money. Yeah, yeah. Chris Powers did a really good episode uh, recently on sort of like, okay, here's why you can't really afford to stay small or to not sort of charge fees on as a real estate private equity investor because you know you're going to get spread too thin and you're not going to have enough cash coming in the door, so you're going to be forced to do do deals that may or may just kind of be marginal. Um, so I hear you. So on the on the fee side, obviously property management, which is totally justified. Uh, I mean, you're operating these properties; they obviously take a lot of they're operationally intensive. Um, do you guys like typically charge an acquisition fee? Is that something that you structure in there as well? Yeah, so we've moved. Uh, we've moved to like we. So we used to do that. We used to have like an act fee and a asset management fee and a blah 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 blah. Seventeen different kinds of fees. And the uh, so it wasn't. So the vehicles were pretty fee heavy, and, and it it was fair because there was just a ton of work being done. It's a lot of work. And the, and the results done, yeah. were good, but when you go to raise money and you stick a, a you know a deck in front of an investor and they're like there's like eight bullet points under the fee section, right. even if individually they're reasonable. And even if when you total them all up, you're like, yeah, I'm making 20 grand from this, like calm down. It's still like a huge psychological barrier for them to right. be like, you know, so, uh, so what we've chosen to do instead is to just charge kind of a flat fee that um, is a percentage of total capitalization for the project. Got so it. we just say like, um, you know, here's the cost of it. Well, it's the denominator in that, in the, uh, uh, in the, in the equation, the unlevered yield calculation. We just say, look, like add it all up, multiply it times 0.05. And that's what the fee is. Yeah. Um, and it, uh, it has the benefit when, when we go and pitch a deal to investors, that fee is sort of baked in already. So when we come to them and we say, you know, outside the fund, like the fund, we get to decide what deals we do, but like, um, if we take a deal to a family office and we say this is a 6.3 or a 6.7 or whatever unlevered, 
the fee number is in there, both the 5% kind of deal fee that I was talking about and also the property management fee. So when they're considering the number, they're like, okay, it's all baked in and I'm just deciding whether I want to do a 6.3 or whatever it is in Los Angeles. And, and so it, it, it doesn't, it hasn't removed the fee conversation, but it, you know, people do have particularly new investors. We still have that like, well, how much are you putting in? But um, it has, we, uh, well, put it this way, enough people have been able to get comfortable with that, that we're able to have a business where we're, we're you know, fully capitalized, we, you know, we have more capital than we know what to do with. Certainly. Yeah. You have a great business on your hands. And so it seems like, um, it's, it's not much of a problem. So, um, and it's justified. I mean, you guys are doing a ton of work. Uh, you said you had how many buildings right now under construction? 12? I think it's 12. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. I, I did want to get into that side of it. Um, it's sort of a hybrid between just pure acquisitions and ground up development. And it's, it's sort of, well, it's, it's adaptive reuse. Um, just kind of give us a background on that and what are, you know, what are some heuristics that you use when you're estimating uh, that part of the equation? Well, I guess the most important thing to say is that we think about buildings sort of as raw material, right? Like it's, it's, we are utterly uninterested in what the current financial characteristics of the building are. So like brokers call me up and they're like, I've got a five cap or actually these days, I've got a 3.75 cap, you know, whatever it is. Uh, and they're surprised and I'm like, I don't care. Right. Like what I want to know is what, it, what can we do with this building? Like what, right. what, and these are these just to, so everyone understands what we're talking about. The housing stock in Los Angeles is very old. Like uh, many of the buildings that we own were built in the 1920s. We actually have a few buildings that were built in the teens. Um, uh, and the rest of the housing stock effectively was built like from between probably like 1952 and 1975 or something. I mean, there's, and then there's some 90s, 80s and 90s buildings. And obviously there's starting to be more built now, but like the vast majority of the housing stock is old. Okay? Yeah. And for various regulatory reasons, uh, those buildings will never be torn down. Like it's just the, the way that zoning and rent control and all that stuff works. You just can't, you're, you're never gonna be able to rip them down. In part because you wouldn't be able to replace them. Like they're, uh, we just finished, a, uh, we're in the process of refinancing a building right now where uh, it was built in the 60s. And then immediately thereafter, the neighborhood was down zone. So that it, it's now R1, which means you like, single family home. Oh, wow. so you can actually, yeah. So it's literally like, I mean, it's, you talk about a moat, right? Like the way that value investors talk about a moat. It's like, you are legally not allowed to build any apartments around here. Yeah. It's like, that's a moat. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. uh, <laughs> um, so, uh, so anyway, so, so these are really old buildings and they need everything. Like they need, you know, uh, they need, you know, plumbing and electric and windows and roof and you name it. And it's, extraordinarily expensive to do that. Um, and so it's very difficult to find buildings that are both um, sufficiently high potential, like they're in a good, they have good bones and they're in a good neighborhood and all that stuff uh, that we can also buy cheaply enough to be able to spend the money necessary to, 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 to transform them and still have the return be good. It's, it's, it's really, it's threading a, a very, very tiny needle. And in fact, right now, like there, there may not be like, whatever, I'm stretching the metaphor here. There may not be a, a, an eye to, to, to put the thread through. Like, like this may not even be possible right now. Uh, it's, it's, 
It's not, that's not quite true. It is, um, the returns right now are in general materially worse than they have been uh, at any time since I got into this business. So yeah. it's not impossible. We bought something in December, but it's like, <clears throat> it's just, it's really hard. Yeah, it's um, hard, hard to find those deals out there. Yeah. Yeah, um, well. But that's, but that's the main thing is it, it's the, the <clears throat> honestly, when people who are experienced in real estate hear about our business, they're almost uniformly, almost uniformly, the, the, the response is like, why are you guys doing this? Like, this is so hard. There's so much brain damage. The deals are so small. Like, why are you doing that? Uh, it's a good question. <laughs> uh, the, the answer is that it, it, the returns are great from a from an LP perspective. Like they're they're just like you get yourself into a six and a half unlevered in Los Angeles at a time when the interest rates are four or four and a half or whatever. You're going to refi out like all your money and then own a building. And we've we've done this I don't know how many times. Buy a building, fix it up, go to the bank, get it valued, refinance, and pull literally a hundred percent of the capital out. And then you just have like a permanent cash flow machine, right? We have a lot of those. That you have zero actual capital left in it. There's no basis. Yeah. We yeah. have we have a bunch of those. Yeah. And so you at that wow. point you've got all your capital back and like you're just getting cash. And by the way, it's sheltered because we do accelerated depreciation on the construction. So it's like you you generate these big loss carry forwards and so that and it's there's like an uh, interest uh, shield from the income tax. So like the free cash flow is basically like untaxed forever. It's incredibly good when it works. Um, so, so it's, so that's, so it's a great business, um, for the help from the LPs perspective. It is a ma- massive pain in the ass from the perspective of the GP from, from, from our perspective. And probably we should go find an easier business to be in, to be completely honest. Uh, but you know, we have found that we can put out, you know, whatever it is, like 15 to 30 million a year doing this. Like it's a niche, right? There's just like, there's only so many needles in the haystack and like, okay. And some years there are going to be more needles and some fewer. Um, but so we'll keep doing, as long as we can keep finding good stuff, we'll keep doing it. Uh, likely we will expand to either uh, other geographies or other business models, but it's, you know, it's kind of worked for us so far. Yeah, that was actually going to be my last question before we hit reconvene, but um, which was basically, you know, hey, so LA is LA and, you know, COVID being what it is, you guys were probably affected, but but not too terribly and, and going to continue to to keep crushing it there. But sort of what were, what were the next steps for Adaptive? That was going to be my last question. You know, if there are other marketplaces, sounds like not other sub-asset classes, but uh, other markets maybe. Well, I mean, I'm open to other asset classes. I mean, it's, um, I'm, I, I'm intellectually quite interested in, I mean, I, I think the creative office business, for example, like it's, it's, I think we would be really awesome at doing creative office, right? Like Interesting. Um, many of the skills that we have, in fact, we rented the, I don't, I can't turn my camera around so easily, but the office that we're in right now was a dump when we rented it and it's freaking awesome now. Like we have, we have a good, you know, we, we, we would be good at that business. Yeah. The problem is that, uh, the financial characteristics of that business are not great. Hmm. They're just like worse than multifamily. The, yeah. You know, you can borrow less, the, you know, you have more vacancy, you, um, uh, the loans are very often recourse, at least at the smaller size. Like there's, it's just like fundamentally a worse, worse business. You have to do TIs sometimes. With right. Capital efficient. It's just like, 
it's a worse business. So then it's like, well, how do you want to grow? Do you want to go like, how do I go talk to investors and say, hey, look, uh, you know, we've been able to do this amazing thing for you, which we are still able to do, not right now, maybe not, but like in general, yes. Uh, uh, but over here, we have this much worse thing. <laughs> right, right. Which we think, relatively speaking, we would be good at. Like we'd probably be good creative, you know, creative office developers, but it is a worse business as far as I can tell. Now, maybe other people are smarter than me and have figured out better ways of doing it or whatever. And, you know, hats off to them. So I'm very intellectually interested in trying some of these other asset classes. Uh, someone just needs to convince me, or rather I need to convince myself that there, that the opportunity is as good as the one which we are currently addressing. Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. And at the very end of the day, you know, having a roof over your head is a need and having an office is, between a need and a want. It's funny. Well, it's funny you should say that. I mean, I think that maybe last year people would have been like, well, no, an office is a need. But I mean, I think that the last year has to a very large extent showed people that maybe it's not so much of a need. Right. Um, yeah. You know, we're mostly working from home right now, to be honest. I mean, I'm in the office, a few other people are, but like generally people are working from home and I don't like that. I don't, mm -hmm. I think it's a, um, I think it's bad for productivity. I'm a big, like, I, I want people back in the office as soon as it's safe to do that. Um, but I think you're right that uh, all of those other asset classes are are uh, just more subject to the cyclicality than multifamily is. It's just like, you know, great, you have a little jewelry store, like, but the economy turns down, like, you're gonna give the rent, you're gonna give the keys back on that before you do on your house. Uh, and I don't see that fundamentally changing. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Well, look, I want to give you a couple minutes just to kind of give your pitch for reconvene. Uh, it's going to be an awesome, awesome, uh, you know, uh, just get together of people on and off offline and investors uh, all over the real estate spectrum. So the floor is yours. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I appreciate you doing this. I'm really terrible at uh, pitching my own stuff. Like I, I always forget to. So I appreciate you prompting me. Um, <laughs> we're doing um my we, I mean, my wife and I actually, and my partner's involved as well, uh, are putting on a conference called Reconvene in Los Angeles. It's going to be October 6th through 8th of this year. So not until the fall, hopefully uh, the COVID stuff will all be in our rear view mirror by then. Um, and the idea is really to bring together real estate, private equity practitioners. Uh, so general, uh, general partners, the kind of people who put deals together and uh, limited partners, the kind of people who invest in those deals. And so like, I mean, I've, I've gone to a million real estate conferences and uh, I probably will never go to one, another one again, to be completely honest. It's like, they tend to be a bunch of brokers uh, wearing suits, having these incredibly bland conversations so they don't offend anyone. And that's like the opposite of what we're trying to do here. We want, um, first of all, we want it to be like operators, like pe people who are actually like going and raising money from other people and, and, and investing it and taking risk and, and in all different kinds of asset classes and markets and everything. Uh, and again, also the kind of people who invest with those people. Um, because I think that as a business, real estate, private equity, it's really like, it's almost like, like a dark art. It's like this thing that like some people learn either from their families or, uh, or maybe they learned it at a big private equity firm or something, but a lot of the knowledge about how to do this business, not, so much the deal, it's, but the next level of, of abstraction, like how do you grow a career, a firm doing this business? Right. That is what I'm interested in. Like I didn't get a lot of guidance and there wasn't a lot of stuff to read about building that, about how you do this thing that we're doing. 
And so the intention uh, behind Reconvene is to allow all of us to sort of like, who are in this business uh, at various stages from like either, you know, doing the first couple of deals to having like Chris, you know, four or $500 million in assets under management to Keith, who's got like a billion and whatever under management. All of us are different points along that continuum and that right. journey. And we want to, we want to create an environment where we can kind of like learn, get to meet some people who can be both mentors for us and for who we can be mentors as well. If that, yeah. if that makes sense. That makes total sense. And that's, um, that's a laudable goal. So that's, that's awesome. Well, yeah, it should be good. And so I, I should say, uh, uh, so it's re-convene.com uh, is where you can join the wait list. And we're, we're letting people off the wait list. So if you, if you sign up, we'll take a look and, uh, and, and, and send you more information. Perfect. I'll, uh, I'll put it in the show notes. So we'll look last two questions. First one is what personal beliefs sort of impact how you both live your life, but also um, live out your professional life that are, that are most important to you? It's a really big question. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I think there's just two things to say. One is I'm a very big believer in family um, and not, and like not maybe, I mean, yes, in the cliched way that everyone means, but I, but I also mean like uh, my, the capital for my first deal came from my great grandfather who like mm-hmm. sweated and bled to put together a, a little stake and then started growing and buying buildings and like, he, that money came to my grandfather and my grandfather could have spent it. There, there was no, re- he, I mean, it wasn't a ton of money, but it was enough. And, and instead what he did was he gave it to my mom. And again, she could have taken amazing vacations and had fancy cars and, and she didn't. She passed it to us that, to capitalize that deal. And so in a very w- real way, I, I believe that, um, I believe that capital can serve as kind of, and should serve as kind of a bridge between generations. It's a, it's a way of, uh, of, of, of connecting us now to the people who uh, sweated and bled and risked uh, uh, for us to build something for themselves and their kids that has come down to us. And so I'm, I'm just totally conscious as I go through my career, uh, both of what I owe to the people who came before me and also what I owe to the people who are coming after me. Mm, yeah, that's a great, that's a great answer. It, it sort of parallels the reconvene of, you know, the mentor, the upper and the lower type of mentorship. So yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah, we're not, I just, this idea that we're like individuals, responsible, you know, and you have to act like you're responsible for your own life outcomes, but you're not (laughs) like, we're all, we're all, uh, you know, we're all part of a community and part of a a continuum and a family and everything. And, and, um, and if you're not coming from a family where that kind of thing happened, and there's plenty of families who for various reasons, it didn't, it's like, you have the opportunity to be like my great grandfather was the first person who does this for your family. Yeah. which in some ways is like the most heroic thing that you could possibly do. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not in that, I, that's not my role in our family, but, uh, but, but it is for, for those who haven't, who don't have those advantages. It's, it's, it's a terrible burden, but it's also like an amazing opportunity to change the, to deflect the trajectory of an entire group of people down through generations. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. And it seems to just be a lot of tension, you know, in politics lately of, because it's true. I mean, Everyone starts off at a different place in life with a different background. And um, sort of how do you 
ensure that uh, that everybody has those opportunities, you know, yeah. without sort of compromising the beautiful system that that we've built as as America, you know. Yeah, uh, I, and if it's I had not an easy. An for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Well, last question: uh, What business hasn't been started yet but needs to be? <laughs> um, what business hasn't been started yet? So also another, another good question here is what's your biggest pain point right now that uh, hasn't been solved? Another way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. That's a fair, that's a, that's a, that's fair. I mean, so our biggest pain point right now is finding deals, right? Like that's far and away. And so there are brokers who obviously this is their job. So it's not, and there probably have been brokers since like the Roman empire or something. I mean, it's not, um, I do think that there is frequently, I mean, we're, we're operating in the sub-institutional part of the market. And um, what that means is that there's a ton of messiness. Like the brokers very often have no idea what they're doing. Like, I, I, just quick anecdote. We just went into contract and, and came out on a deal uh, where when we, we went into contract and then we told the broker we wanted to inspect the building. And he's like, what do you mean inspect the building? We're like, what do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> like, 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 of course, like, uh, uh, ultimately we were able to arrange the inspection, but it was so, so uh, in that sub-institutional part of the market, um, there are all kinds of, um, uh, th- there's, there's all kinds of friction and um, bad information. Mm-hmm. And those represent opportunities for us. Like we, we thrive, you know, I regard our business as basically like having a knife fight in a sewer. Like it, 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 like it, it's, we're good at it, but it is messy and people are lying to you and you know, whatever. So, um, but anyway, so, so you asked for a good, so, so, uh, and there are some brokers who are like this. Um, Brokers who bring a kind of an institutional mindset of, you know, preparation and and organization and everything, um, casting a wide net, running relatively clean sale processes, that kind of stuff, can do extraordinarily well in the part of the market in which we operate because there just there's just the competition is very often not doing that. And and one of the things I've seen in my career now, we've been doing this long enough, you can sort of spot the young brokers who are going to go on to do really well. And like, as I've grown and, you know, there's always brokers coming in and out of the business. Right. Right. Um, But you could kind of see 10 years ago or whatever, the ones who had their act together have now gone on to just doing bigger and bigger properties and portfolios. And it's awesome to watch leaving a gap at the lower end of the market for organized, smart people who run clean processes to come in and build their own businesses as well. Yeah, no, yeah. And perhaps not a, not a business idea, but, uh, but definitely an opportunity for those people who are young and hungry and, and, and are professional and organized. Um, And that was my first thought as well. If they're going to do that, wouldn't they just sort of move up market and do bigger and better deals? But that's what happens. Yeah, that's and what then, happens. You know, yeah. and but it's okay because it just means that that's like the toehold for the next uh, generation yeah. of people coming in to 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 go in there and do that. Yeah, and there's a great lesson in there of just sort of like you know knowing what's t- what table to select when you're going to to play a poker game. So it sounds like Absolutely. there's some opportunity. So, Absolutely. 
Yeah. Well, Moses, thanks so much, man. This was, this was a blast and uh, I'll be following your progress. If you want to get in touch with Moses, uh, Moses Kagan, find him on Twitter and uh, I'll, I'll post the the link to the, to the, uh, to the gathering to reconvene yep. and the show notes. Um, awesome. But thanks again for, for taking the time. Been my pleasure. And uh, thanks for having me on. This is Benton here again. Thanks so much for listening to the Circle of Competence podcast. To find more episodes like this one, go to circleofcompetence.co. That's circleofcompetence.co to sign up for my weekly podcast emails, as well as a monthly summary of links to blog posts and articles I liked most from the previous month. Finally, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating on iTunes, which will help more people discover the work we are doing to explore the entrepreneurial investor's journey. Thanks again for listening.